Hello everyone, I hope you are well. I'm Carlos Carnicero Uravallin and I want to welcome you all to Future is Blue, a series of podcasts bringing together top experts from academia and think tanks to discuss the most pressing European economic and policy challenges of today. This is a Funkas Europe initiative and we hope we can bring new ideas for a more inspiring debate about Europe. Hello everyone, today we will cover how state guarantee programs have played a key role to support businesses during COVID. And we'll take a look at the broader implications of these programs for our economies. So let me introduce today's guest. We're joined by Alice Faibyshenko. Uh, Alice, uh, she's a senior advisor at Funkasting Tank and is also a founding partner of the E3 Partnership, a firm focused on market intelligence and advisory services. And previously, Alice worked as a senior advisor to the Minister of Economy in Spain. And she's an expert in government advising economic policy and markets. So Alice, thank you for joining the Future is Blue podcast. Thanks for having me, Carlos. I'm very pleased to present today two of the articles highlighted in this um, May issue of uh, one of the journals that we publish for Funcas. It's called CEFO, Spanish and International Economic and Financial Outlook. It's our bi-monthly English journal on some of the most pressing issues facing the Spanish and international economy and financial system today. So happy to discuss um, the issues that you'd like to talk about. Oh, excellent, excellent. So that everyone knows the, a link of the, the latest CEFO report is going to be included in the show notes of this uh, podcast episode. So Alice, we're here to cover uh, guarantee programs uh, that were implemented during the pandemic. So not just in Spain, but in other countries. So what's the, what's the reasoning behind these programs? Sure, uh, Carlos. So essentially in response to the pandemic, many countries introduced varying state guarantee programs to help solve in businesses weather the crisis. So the idea was essentially to prevent uh, business and employment destruction. Um, some of the programs ranged from 100% forgivable loans, uh, such as in the U.S. under the PPP or Paycheck Protection Programs, which were essentially direct aid to programs like we had in Spain, where the government provided a guarantee, but the idea was always for the loans to be paid back. As well, the Spanish guarantees were not for 100% of the outstanding credit, but rather in the order of about 80%. So, as I said, in the U.S., we had the PPP program, for example, which worked very well in preventing business destruction. About $800 billion of aid was provided with conditionality based on employment preservation objectives. And the perception is that the program also helped to keep NPL ratios at lows. In Spain, in the coming year or so, when the grace periods end for the guarantee programs here, will be able to better determine the efficacy of these programs and their impact. So, okay, let's discuss some details about the Spain's public guarantee scheme. And I understand that there have been recent modifications. So this program started during COVID and, and just after COVID, we had another shock with the war in Ukraine and the consequences that that's having in our economy. So I understand that the, the original plan was modified due to the consequences of the war in Ukraine. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Basically, in this issue of CEFA, we'll cover that in greater detail. We discussed Spain's public guarantee schemes and 
Basically, in the Spanish scheme was one of the largest in Europe. In relative value, it was the first largest scheme, and in absolute value, it was the third um, behind France and Italy. So basically, the Spanish exposures were about 20% of total amount of credit extended to the businesses in Spain. And that's significantly higher than the European average, um, where about 7% of the uh, public guarantee exposures where, where public guarantee exposures were about 7% of the total outstanding credit to the business segment. So, so it's a weightier, a weightier program here. And essentially, as you said, one of the most noteworthy measures taken by the government to mitigate the effects of the war in Ukraine was the approval of this new 10 billion euro state guarantee scheme tranche and the extension of maturities on some of the loans that were awarded under the pandemic guarantee scheme for six months for the sectors which were exposed uh, to energy and commodities. Um, so we're talking about sectors like transport, agriculture, sectors that really saw, saw the energy price shock. And this was in an attempt to prevent the geopolitical tensions from having compounded effects on top of the toll already taken by the pandemic, which you, which you already mentioned. So, but uh, um, Spain took a, a certain route, uh, and it's about guaranteed lending, whereas other countries such as the US and Germany they opted for direct aid for companies. So that what's I mean the difference here is that in, in Spain they, they're supposed businesses are supposed to give the money back and in the US and Germany is there's there's no obligation in that regard. Is that correct? Um well essentially I mean the the Spanish guarantee program as you said it was it covered about eighty percent um, and this is largely because we couldn't permit a direct guarantee program such as that you could see in, in the U.S. or Germany. In the U.S., for example, the PPP program, um, which was ultimately extended through three rounds, it ended up lending out about, as we said, $800 billion, which was forgivable um, if certain conditionality was met. And that's it's just something the Spanish fiscal situation couldn't permit. So, yes, the idea essentially was from the get-go, the U.S. programs were understood to be forgivable. If those con if certain conditions related to employment preservation were met, those conditions were generally colloquially believed to be fairly lax, um, and you know, pretty much all of the PPP debt has already been forgiven, and so that has been you know assumed by the government coffers. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that the, the the Spanish plan has been helpful thus far in containing the evolution of non-performing loans? Well, this is something we discuss in detail in, in, the, in the article in this issue of Cepho. It's actually an interesting point. Uh, the trend of low asset non-performance in the last two years since the pandemic, they've been flat or even slightly decreasing despite the unprecedented economic contraction in Spain, is, is really a, one of the key paradoxes that we're seeing in the Spanish and European banks reporting of their financial statements. So essentially, NPLs at the end of two, two, 2021 were relatively low by historic standards. And that evolution of NPLs in Spain here remains to be seen because the grace periods are still are still outstanding. When we start to see that being phased out and the loans will be repaid, that's probably when we're going to see, you know, what 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 is really going to happen and how those NPLs unfold. In the U.S., for example, the state guarantee scheme, um, which of course looks very different from the one we had in Spain, the PPP, it ended up being highly successful in preventing business destruction and keeping NPLs at bay. In fact, NPLs. Are pretty much at at, at at lows right now, um, and but as we said, you know the PPP program was different. It contemplated 100% forgiveness um, if a few baseline conditions were met, as long as the money was earmarked to 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 payroll and to maintaining employment. So, 
you know, if, if the U.S. program is anything of, of a precursor, it, it, it'll go, you know, it should be helpful, but the situations are different, the program structures are different, so we'll just have to wait and see how, how this unfolds when the grace periods phase out in Spain. When is, when is the grace period over in Spain? It should, we should start to see, we should, well, there was an extension in March of about six months, but we should start to see really the impact on NPLs um, at the end of this year and the beginning and, and next year, into next year. Apart from these pandemic-related issues, are there any detectable longer-term trends that are shaping the prospects of the financial system? Uh, yes, and actually we, we do discuss this in another piece um, in this latest issue of CEFO. And it's related to the acceleration of financial digitalization in the wake of the pandemic. So the pandemic accelerated the push towards digitalization in Spain on multiple fronts. But one of the areas where we really noticed a lot of significant acceleration was in the financial arena, with Spaniards increasing reliance on online banking and payments methods, as well as their interest in crypto assets. Well, at the same time, we also noticed that they have been, for the most part, taking, account the, taking into account the growing importance of related security measures. So, for example, in the latest uh, online survey that we produced by uh, Funca's Observatory of Financial Digitalization, it's called ODF, you can find it online, um, that's from December 2021, we found that about 36% of banking service users are currently using their online banking apps daily or almost daily, and that compares to about 17% before the pandemic. But it also is important to point out that financial digitalization in Spain has, has not been homogeneous. There are different sectors, different demographics, different regions. So the physical branches still play an important part in the equation. Um, and it is also interesting to point out that the elderly in Spain have made significant progress on the financial digitalization front, maybe out of necessity, but it has been a natural experiment of the pandemic, which has proven their capacity to react and to change, which has been a positive development. Yeah, I, th I think that's that's striking to see how banks are transforming after covid and i think i've seen i've seen many physical branches closing down and probably they are people are more used to using uh, digital devices to do certain things that before they would need to go to the actual uh, um, bank branch right yeah definitely a cultural change that we're seeing mm -hmm. But I, I, I think it's uh, what you mentioned, the, the, uh, the, the challenge for the uh, elderly population. I think that's a, that's a big challenge. I think they, they are ready to, uh, to, to get new skills, but banks need as well to, to provide some support in that regard. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. So, sober economy is a huge area where, where they're, I think banks are aware of the importance of the sober economy and the need to, to cater to that sector as well, both uh, in terms of products and services. Alice, did you think some of these trends we are seeing in, in this uh, post-pandemic world are going to last, or do you think we're going to go backwards in certain certain digitalization progress we've made in the last in the last few months? I mean, it's early to give a definitive answer, but I think, for example, in the case of payment preferences, the pandemic accelerated the digitalization of payments. Maybe not for the entirely the right reasons. Initially, there were concerns of COVID risk from cash that were later disproven. But in any event, digital payments, especially from mobile phones, have now displaced in Spain cash as the main payment method. So about almost 70% of people are making their purchases using non-cash methods. And about 18% of those that we surveyed um, said that they continue to use cash as their main payment method. So it's a notable change with respect to pre-pandemic preferences in terms of cash usage. And so far, we're not seeing any signs that this is reverting. Interesting. Um, 
what about the risks of from digitalization? Do you see any risks or, or we're only seeing advantages on the, the fact that we are seeing more and more uh, digitalized services pretty much in all sectors? I think there, there are always risks with any new emergent trend. Um, in the case of digitalization in the financial arena, we're seeing a growing interest in crypto assets in Spain, particularly among young male users as a result of this survey and essentially for investment purposes. So here the European authorities have been alerting for some time over the possible risks related to crypto, which we are now seeing materialize to some extent with all the volatility and, and price collapses. But appetite for crypto and other high-risk assets could naturally wane as central banks start to raise rates. As well, increased digitalization means increased scope for cyber risk. Um, again, here according to our survey, though a large part of the population in Spain, about 80% or so, is is actually adhering to the bank security recommendations, um, less so in the case of mobile apps, but but it is a favorable a favorable evolution at this stage. All right, I think we're we're coming to an end. Uh, Alice, it was great having you uh, on board the Futurist Blue podcast to, to cover these hot topics, and we'll we'll invite you in the future when the next uh, Funcas uh, C4 report is out. So it will be great to see what's what's your. What are your next topics that you'll be you'll be covering at Funcas? Perfect. Thank you so much, Carlos. Very happy to participate and look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you all for joining. This was all for now. We will come back soon with more exciting speakers on Europe's economic and policy-related key debates. Future is Blue is a Funcas Europe initiative. I'm Carlos Carnicero Ravallen, and if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to recommend it to others and share it on social media. Thank you all and stay well.